And that really gave us the global footprint to head into the IPO and create the kind of global e-com action sports narrative. As quickly as it all built up, it actually was also a curse. We just couldn't move as quickly and efficiently as we tried to, and it started to break. I feel like we're in the healthiest position we've ever been in. Even looking back to those highs of highs of when the share price was flying, we were never this profitable, even back then. Welcome to Add to Cart, the podcast that Express delivers all you need to know in the fast-moving world of e-commerce. Every month, Nathan Bush from 12 High and an e-commerce industry expert will share the news, research and insights that you need to know to keep you at the top of your game. And of course, keep your customers adding to cart. Hello and welcome to Add to Cart. My name is Nathan Bush, host of Add to Cart and director at e-commerce talent agency eSuite. Now, it's been a wild few years for today's guest. If there was an analogy, perhaps it's the big wave rider who caught the perfect barrel only to disappear into that green tube, apparently sunk, but then emerge with a few reef cuts but still on the wave. Can you tell I know nothing about surfing? From being the innovative leaders and the market darlings of the ASX to going through voluntary administration and now back to profitability, Justin Hilberg has led his team at SurfStitch through it all. Justin is the managing director of SurfStitch and shares his views on everything from how discounting is not ideal, but there are ways to do it effectively, to how they are helping other direct-to-consumer retailers get off the ground with their marketplace and why they're moving into homewares and beauty under the SurfStitch umbrella. Stay tuned right until the end where Justin gives his insight into what it looks like when a business goes through that wild ride of administration and how he kept the team together throughout it all. So thanks to our partner Shopify Plus and Signet, here's our conversation with Justin Hilberg from SurfStitch. Justin Hilberg, welcome to Add Descartes. Thank you. Good to be here. Mate, we're doing this on a, on a Friday afternoon, so the cruisy surf stitch nature might be even a little cruisier today, hey? It always is on a Friday afternoon. We've, for a long time, had early knockoffs on Friday afternoon, which is kind of about that time. So 3.30 um, is when we all kind of peel off and extend the weekend. Beautiful. Sorry to keep you, mate. No, no problem. No, I'm, I'm normally not one that peels off. <laughs> so this is standard for me. That's the good thing about culture, isn't it? You get all the perks when you're an employee, but when you're the boss, they probably don't stick as well. No, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, tell us about your journey with Surf Stitch. I'm, I'm sure everyone who's listening has heard of Surf Stitch, but tell us a little bit about your journey and, and where the business is today from your perspective. Yeah, sure. So I, I started with Surf Stitch in 2014, um, January 2014. And at that time, they were majority owned by Billabong and they were pretty eager to split from Billabong. So we were in a process of building out the senior management team and trying to raise capital, purchasing back the stake from Billabong and then leading into an IPO um, of December of that same year in 2014. So I joined at a pretty hectic, pivotable, pivotal period in the, in the business. Capital raise was pretty successful. We raised, um, I think over, over 60 million in a pre-IPO raise, purchased back the surf stitch portion from Billabong. Um, and at the same time, we purchased Swell from Billabong too, which was the That's North right. American e-com business. Uh, and we purchased surf dome off Quicksilver out of the UK and that really gave us a global footprint to head into the IPO um, and create the, the kind of global e-com action sports narrative. Yeah, and just for people to cast their mind back at that spot, you were the pioneers like in Australia, you are one of the pioneers of e-com at that time. Um, I think when you came out of the blocks, caught a lot of people by surprise. Who were your yeah. competitors back then? Oh, so we, we launched in 2008. We were one of the, the earlier movers. It was pre the iconic. It wasn't a lot of e-com competition. We looked a lot overseas. So ASOS was a big one. I think at that point they were doing big volume out in this market. It was easily a $100 million division for them, um, the Australian market. And that was back then. So we, we looked to them a lot and used it a lot. 
of inspiration of, of their business model, um, as well as some of the other kind of online players out of the US. So, yeah, we, we kind of took inspiration from those guys. The Iconic came onto the scene not long after. It was a few years after after we were there and really burst on with really deep pockets and heavy marketing investment, which we didn't necessarily have at the time. So they were able to come in and grab a bunch of share pretty early on. So it wasn't long until we looked to them locally as as pretty serious competitors. Yeah. And given um, where e-commerce is at today in Australia, especially after last year and the COVID boom, casting your mind back to where you were in 2008, does any of this surprise you or do you think we're behind the curve of where we should be or are we ahead of it? Yeah, I think in some ways we are probably at the pace of the rest of the world and then in other ways I felt like we're, we're a bit behind. So I think where we were probably a bit behind was on our multi-channel, um, omni-channel strategy. So I think globally a lot of the stalwart bricks and mortar chains adopted digital retail a lot faster than what we did here. Um, mainly, I, I don't know, I, I think partially because of some of the earlier disasters with Harvey's and Myers and those kind of guys that just didn't get it right and spooked the rest of the market around some of their their experiences. But in other markets, I feel like those kind of stalwart bricks and mortar retailers adopted digital a lot faster than what we did. It's a really good point because even in the US, you can see people like Walmart, even yeah. though they've got Amazon in their backyard, Walmart are really taking it to them. They're doing some cool stuff. and Awesome job. Yeah. yeah. And so they're kind of leading the pack, whereas here it's been the challenger brands like yourselves, like the Iconic, which has really had to lead the way for everyone to increase or, or improve their standards. Yeah, I feel, I feel like we're catching up. I think, yeah, I think some of the, some of the more youthful brands out there are doing a really good job. I think Accent Group had a cracking year last year. I think the way they invested in digital was really impressive. I think True Alliance has done a good job with their kind of direct-to-consumer mono-branded strategy around their portfolio. I think that's been really strong. And even other brands like Universal have done a good job just kind of leading the way from a from an omni-channel experience. So, yeah, there's definitely guys out there that um, have done a good job in this market. And I think the last 12 months really accelerated everybody along their digital journey, which has been good for the whole, the whole space, I think. Like bees to the honeycomb, retailers are loving Signet's new sustainable alternatives to traditional e-commerce packaging. Signet have recently introduced honeycomb mailers into their eco-friendly range. Made from craft paper, the 100% recyclable padded mailers offer the same protection as plastic bubble mailers without costing the earth. Signet have over 5,500 packaging solutions to help leading e-commerce businesses step up their packaging game. Visit signet.net.au to find out more. Do you mind if we dive into your e-commerce experience? Yeah, sure. sure. One thing one thing that I did notice is that browsing through the SurfStitch site is that there is a lot of sale activity and a lot of coupon activity, which opens up a bunch of questions is, firstly, how much do you rely on sales? And, you know, there's this thing at the moment where people are like, if you go on sale, that means that you haven't got enough brand equity or customer trust you always have to go on sale so i'm firstly interested in that and then i'd love to talk about how you use coupons yeah so early on we use coupons like right from the, the early days of surf stitch and it is one of those things that once you start and you build up a behavior with your, your customer base particularly those early rusted on customers it is difficult to wean those customers off that behavior so if we were to start again, we probably wouldn't use them as liberally, but we have used them from an, a really early kind of strategy. So we've stuck with it. What we've become better at is using them a lot more intelligently. We don't do a lot of mass site-wide coupon codes that are kind of mass blasted everywhere. We're quite strategic with it now. So we'll pick different audiences that we want to incentivize at different times of the year. Um, and it's quite good if you want to give one segment of your base, a certain offer, and then another segment, a different offer, new customers an offer, existing customers an offer. You can message different offers to a lot of different segments and we're much better at that now. You don't see us doing a lot of 
site-wide broad stroke activity. Um, and it can be quite effective still as a tool for that. Yeah, that makes sense. And because I've noticed you've got different offers in market, like as you alluded to, is like it might have X percent off board shorts. I'm making it up at the moment. Or spend 100, get a free Roxy pencil case. Or yeah. it might be an affiliate kind of referral code. Is the idea that the, none of that, from what I've seen, is calculated in checkout. You need to apply the code, the coupon code in there. Is the idea yep. that customers having to pick the coupon code that they're using, one stops multiple discounting or multiple layers of discounting happening, as well as you don't lose the margin of customers who may have stumbled in and bought anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it allows you to be a lot more targeted. So with our our gift with purchase program, we're really focusing that on customers that are purchasing full price product. So we calculate within our offer how much margin we're willing to incentivize customers to purchase full price product. And we obviously buy those those gifts in bulk and get them at a great rate. Sometimes our vendors donate them to us to push certain products or certain categories. So we we calculate all of that up front. So but we don't want them to kind of double dip on that. We don't want them to use a first purchase plus a birthday code and mm. use a free gift code because you end up going out of business. So that's where it helps having that that coupon code box where it's sort of one at a time, one per transaction. I once worked in a business that when they first introduced their loyalty program, they had things like the birthday coupon code. I think it was actually a credit. You got something like you know $30 credit or whatever. Plus, they had big annual sales and the rest and you could layer them on. Mm. We were able to get it so that at one certain combination, the retailer actually paid the customer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some of them are really obscure combinations and we've been caught before as well where yeah, there was a period when I very first started at Surf Stitch. We sold something like 400 surfboards at $15 in 20 minutes. Like it just, it just something blew up where someone figured out a certain stacking of certain codes because we didn't write the code profile correctly. Um, and then shared it on a, on a blog somewhere, some, oh. some stab blog or something like that. And it went a bit viral, but yeah, it, it went nuts. So we had a lot of disappointed customers <laughs> that yeah. day. But yeah, it happens. I think every retailer goes through that a couple of times until they, they put their processes in place and go, hey, let's not do that again because it's not a great experience. Yeah, it's an expensive lesson. But um, yeah, yeah I had a similar one with another client who did a discount code. It was a family and friends offer that just went out via email and it had a coupon code, but it made its way onto Ausbargain. And then yep. all of a sudden, they had this big influx and it was crazy prices that they just couldn't honor. And it, there's nothing worse then having to make those phone calls to customers oh, yeah. going, I know you got through checkout. I know you got the confirmation emails, but we're not honoring it. Yeah. Yeah. You do the, the human error mm. um, back out. Yeah. It's not, it's not ideal. And we've over the, the years of surf stitch, we've done a few whoops emails or sorry phone calls. And so, some of it in the early days was endearing to our customers because they're like, Hey, thanks for owning up. Thanks for, thanks for giving us a shout out and wearing it like on your chest. But yeah, these days, I think customers are less forgiving with those types of things. That's right. Especially when you get as big as you are now. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your sign-up program? So one of the things that I noticed on your website is that you put a lot of focus on um, incentivizing customers to sign up with their email address. Mm-hmm. My question to you is how do you put a value? Because at the moment, you've got $20 off for an email sign up and then you've also got a f- referral program which is $25 for you, $25 for a friend if you yep. do a successful referral. How do you get to the number of what an email address is worth to you in monetary terms? Uh, well, we, we see it as a customer acquisition cost. So if we're, if we're growing our emailable customers, um, we've got a higher chance of turning them into converting customers. And once they're on our, once they're on our base, we do get more intelligence over what they're reacting to from a, an email channel perspective. So we do incentivize customers to sign up. We've done it for a long time and we're currently reviewing whether that's the best use of our, of our dollars because I think the landscape's changed. And we, we obviously put a certain value on new customer signups and new customer acquisition and 
we're constantly stress testing ways we can reduce our acquisition costs, um, like every digital retailer, Mm. I think. And it's not, there's no one answer to it. So we're trying to move to a program that rewards frequency as opposed to just first time purchase because we're, we're not happy about our first time purchase being rewarded more than every other purchase from a fifth or sixth times purchase customer. We actually think it almost needs to go the other way. So how can we increase the reward the more the customer purchases? So, um, again, it's a bit of a, bit of a legacy thing for us. We've had it from the very early days of surf stitch and some of those things they're hard to walk away from because you, you can see the results and you're like, Oh, but if we walk away from that, will it go to zero? Yeah. But often you don't know. Yeah. You don't don't want to take the needle out of your arm. (laughs) No. And often you don't know till you try it. Right. So we're, um, we're building a bit more of a robust loyalty program in the background that will aim to incentivize the first purchase, but also subsequent purchases after that at a higher rate. So we really want to encourage purchase frequency in our go forward program. How are you finding the process of coming up with the offer for the loyalty program? Because that's a really hard thing to do because there's so much data and so many options. Yeah, it's tricky. We want to keep it really simple. We don't want to make the program complex. We want to make it easy to understand. We originally started off talking points and earning points for for different behaviours and transactions, but our most recent thought is just making it dollars to make Mm. it super easy to understand and unlocking a certain dollar credit, which is just cash into the customer's account based on their spend and then incentivizing their purchase frequency with other benefits um, over time. So having a certain dollar go into their store credit per dollar spend on surf stitch with some minimum thresholds and then offering free shipping, free returns, express shipping, that kind of stuff as they become more frequent purchases. So rewarding more of the loyalty aspect of it. And we, yeah. we've done we've done the modeling on that. And I think if we know how many customers purchase once, how many customers purchase twice and so on. So if we just sort of we did some worst case scenarios and some best case scenarios based on how many dollars we would put into people's account and whether they would redeem those dollars over time and if it would incentivize additional purchases at different cohorts and it was done at our average order value, whether it would be a high payoff or a low payoff. And I think we've got to a model now where even on a base case, it makes sense. So there's pretty low risk. Technology is getting cheaper too in that space. So we're ready to pull the trigger. I reckon in the next next couple of months, we'll be live. And then for full FY22, it'll be a, a big clean year kind of heading into, into peak trade for us. So looking forward to it. Yeah, that's nice timing, isn't it? To be able to have yeah. that clean cut hopefully into the new financial year. You mentioned in there about potentially, and I don't expect you to give it away, rolling returns into some sort of program. I noticed that you've got free returns and it's, you know, from me following SurfStitch, it's one of the things that has always stood out and I think you guys really led the way around allowing customers to return items that didn't fit or they didn't like just for change of mind. Um, It's always been free. Do you, how does that work for you now? Is that still a sustainable model? Yeah, we 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 run a a pretty lean return rate. Now, I think there's a, a number of reasons which build into that. We try and do as good a job as possible with our product content. So we really clear photography. You can you can zoom in. The product content's simple, easy to understand. We tend to sell brands that are household names. So normally, if you're buying a Billabong T-shirt or some Rip Curl swimmers, you've probably got a version in your cupboard that you know what size you are. We've got a relatively low free shipping threshold, so we're not kind of encouraging people to just increase their basket size to get free shipping. We found in the early years we were doing that. We had free shipping over $100 back in the day, and we found like people were just going, okay, I'll get two sizes of that, one dress, and then get my free shipping. I know I've got free returns, so I'll just return the one that doesn't work. So we we found if we drop that free shipping threshold, then we – Customers weren't, they were more confident to go, I'll try the eight or I'll try the 10 or I'll try the 32. And then we had less return rates on, on the back of that. But yeah, we would sit just under 10% returns, which is pretty good for a fashion business mm. and fashion apparel business. That's and we really found, 
Yeah, yeah, definitely low compared to our peers. We run a pretty high percentage of men's in our business and they return very low, partially due to laziness. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other part is they're like, oh, it fits close enough, so that'll <laughs> that'll work. But, yeah, we run higher rates on the women's business and some categories run higher than that, obviously. But what we've managed to do over time is just slightly increase the friction. There's a, a real fine balancing act between how much friction is acceptable and how much friction is a pain in the ass and doesn't mean you'll go back. So um, we used to put free shipping labels in every order so that it was so easy where you're almost encouraging customers to return stuff. <laughs> so we, we stopped doing some of that. We removed all the paper. Um, you now have to log on, put your order details in there and log your reason, get an approval code and then print out a, a form to stick on so we just added a few extra steps it gives us more intelligence saves paper and wastage and means you've just got to work that little bit harder to to do the return yeah that's nice it's um i think a lot of people naturally freak out around free returns um especially for change of mind but if we put ourselves in the customer's perspective no one wants to bugger around with returning items, whether it's even if it's people picking it up from your house rather than going to the post office, it's still a hassle and no one yeah. really wants to do it if they don't have to. Exactly. And you want to get it right. And I think if you're on the fence with ordering something, sometimes a really good returns process just takes that risk out of it for the customer. Mm. So it often is the difference between a customer ordering something then and there or saying, you know what, I'm going to go into store and check that out. Or I'm going to do a bit more research. So I definitely, if you can't underestimate the value of a, of a really strong returns policy, but also a good process. And, and we've got work to do on our returns process as well. We're actually building out a, a custom portal in our platform so that customers can make that returns process a lot easier from their side too. Nice. And do all your returns come into one warehouse and get processed yeah. for one? Yeah. yeah, they do. Even our marketplace vendors it all comes back to us. We'd prefer them to deal with us. We can deal with them through customer service. Um, we process them really quickly and efficiently. It means customers got the money back in their account really quickly and they can get out spending again. Yeah, nice, nice. You mentioned in there before that one of the benefits that you have is that you do carry a lot of really well-known brands like Billabong, Nike, Patagonia. Like, There's a lot of brands in there that people recognize. Yep. And you've also developed a lot of your own brands over we have over yeah. the years. How has that relationship gone as you've introduced? And I'm assuming your own brands have taken a little bit more share as you go. How's that impacted your relationship with those established brands? Yeah, it's been fine. I think for it's a little bit different for us because we've always been growing and we've always had a more is more philosophy. I think with e-com businesses, you're not really bound by shelf space or you've got a four-way at the front or a table at the front and every brand gets two slots. Um, it's a bit different for us. We've never really had that approach to merchandising. So we have a really customer-centric approach. So if we think it makes sense to the customer to sit in the assortment, we'll find the OTB to put behind it. So brands never really saw a decline in their OTB based on the fact our own brands were growing because we never really built our brands to go head-to-head with any one particular brand. We typically built them to fill gaps in the market. So it was either price point gaps or one area that we really wanted to build out was a core program. So we've got a lot of basics that sit in our own brands at decent margin. We can put on two-for programs and multi-buys and things like that that we weren't necessarily getting offered from our brands. So that's where those brands originated. So... Our biggest brand is Swell, mm-hmm. which we acquired from Billabong, like I mentioned before, back in 2014, 2015. So we built that into a into a brand and it's now our biggest across across the platform. It operates in sort of men's, women's, kids, as well as a bunch of accessories. Um, and it's just really good, honest price point brand um, that's super accessible for the everyday beachgoer. Um, yep. And then we've got Depactus, which is that, kind of outdoors, men's focus, a lot more technical brand that's got a really good DNA attached to it. Mm. And then we've got a bunch of other smaller brands that are a lot more niche and targeted that are, that are sort of category specific. But it is a, it's a feature now in the retail landscape that having a strong private label business is important just to 
drive those gross margins that you're not necessarily getting from from the third party vendors. Yeah, absolutely. And what I've noticed with you guys is that, you know, in the old days, own brand would be let's take all the colors off the box and do it in black and white and make it look a bit dodgy. You've put a lot of effort and a lot of uh, content and marketing behind brands like Swell so that sure. they don't they, st- they stand on their own two feet behind or aside, beside the established brands as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was always important for us. We wanted to treat them as standalone brands um, and earn their space on the site in their own right. So, um, yeah, we put a lot of effort into the design and the production. They all stack up from a, a quality perspective with some of the best brands in the business and they get a front row seat to all of our campaign and production. So, yeah, super important for us. We're keen to grow it as well. We think we could double it in the next sort of three to five years um, as a percentage of our business. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're definitely keen to invest. And do you offer those, those private labels on marketplaces outside of the SurfStitch platforms? Okay. We do to your traditional marketplaces. So where where we offer surf stitch products in general, like Trade Me, eBay, Amazon, we're there with those brands also. We've had discussions with some other marketplaces as well, and we definitely wouldn't rule it out, but we haven't haven't pulled the trigger there as yet. Yeah, nice. And I understand from what I read, I think it was an article this week, that you are expanding your product range into new categories to um, try and fight the seasonality of summer. Yeah, yeah. We've been trying to do this for a while. We get pigeonholed a little bit as a as a surf retailer um, and we still get a lot of our customers that come to us once a year for their, for their summer wardrobe and then we what? don't see them again until next summer. Might be something in the name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've thought many times about changing it, but it's like you get too deep on something yep. and there's no looking back. Um, yeah, so we Yeah, so we we really see ourselves as coastal lifestyle, which I guess can be summer centric as well, but we're we're keen to get offer customers a 24/7 kind of assortment that they can come back back to us multiple times a year. And we feel like we can do a good job with that. So, yeah, we're launching new categories like beauty and wellness, home, uh, coastal home um, will be on the, on the agenda soon to be, to be released. Uh, workwear, got a few of our endemic brands that are keen to get into workwear. That's cool. Um, yeah, and that's a, it's a bit of a growing industry. A lot of, a lot of our customers are moving into more kind of outdoor occupations and are needing that kind of rugged apparel. And a lot of the traditional brands in that space don't really cut it from a, a fit, look and feel perspective. So FXD actually did a great job there. So they're, they're under the globe stable FXD and they're doing a great job um, talking to that consumer. So there's a, a bunch of other brands that are keen to jump in there too. So Volcom's bringing out a range, Rusty's bringing out a range. So we're, we're keen to kind of blow out that workwear side of our assortment too. So we know that customer comes to us to buy their, their boardies, wetsuits and, and swimwear. So we can, they can also get the same experience by um, purchasing their workwear as well. That's cool. Have you spoken to Ed at Trademark before? No. They're doing some cool stuff with workwear around um, linking it to blokes' mental, mental illness and basically their whole premise is that workwear is boring. Let's make it interesting. Yeah, cool. Um, but yeah, it's on some cool stuff. When you said around categories like beauty and home, that's obviously a long way away from what's on the side at the moment. Is it going to be kind of a separate entity or a separate channel or is it going to fold into the existing experience? Yeah, we've got it as separate categories at the moment on site. We want to, we want to keep it really native with the shopping experience. And when we're, we're not going to be doing lipstick tutorials and um, foundation kind of content. It's very much a coastal, outdoor, relevant assortment of sort of beauty and wellness. So um, a lot more around skincare as opposed to makeup. Yeah, so we're, we're starting to build that out now. We've got a couple of good partners. Um, we've got a lot more that's coming. And all of these are a part of our marketplace proposition that we've got on site. So it gives us a lot more flexibility with testing new categories without the inventory risk. 
so yeah, we're we're quite happy to just kind of jump into a category, figure out what's getting traction, what customers like, what customers don't like, and then we can peel it back and figure out the the right assortment to offer to the customer. It's awesome. And I can imagine that your merchandisers must just be frothing at the moment around all the opportunities around things like bundling and upselling and cross-selling when you've got all these different price points and total non-competing product. Yeah, there's a, a really interesting piece of data work that we're doing right now around if customers purchase swimwear or towels, what else should we kind of put in front of them along the journey and recommendations and you also may like and different content slots around the journey. Um, and we're doing a lot of a lot of cool testing around that because you've got such a broad variety of product mix that's coming onto the site. Yeah, the learnings are immense. It takes a long time <laughs> just to, to get your head through everything and it's absolutely a, an important part of the business. When Tamburlaine Organic Wines were looking to push their expansion nationally and internationally, they realized that their custom-built, pause-focused platform just wasn't going to cut it. They selected Shopify Plus as the foundation for their expansion. Plus allowed Tamburlaine to create tiered member pricing using scripts, introduce web chat, and see customer churn analytics. The result? A 30% conversion rate boost within the first six weeks of migration. Now that's something to cheers to. To read more of Tamberlane's story and see other case studies, visit the customer section on shopify.com.au forward slash plus. You mentioned there around the marketplace on the site. How does that work? From a customer point of view, they wouldn't know the difference really until they get into deeper into the funnel where we are pretty clear about the, the shipping methods. So some product ships directly from our vendor partners and um, the bulk of it still comes from our warehouse on the Gold Coast. Yeah, we've had marketplace type modeling for, for quite a while, but late last year we partnered with Marketplacer and we really ramped it up. So that allowed us to, to jump into um, homewares and beauty, um, wellness, and really rapidly onboard a lot of new brands and present a lot of new products and new product categories to the customer. So we would have jumped. 30 to 40% in products on offer to our customer in the space of three to four months wow. um, without even investing in, in inventory. So it's given us a good opportunity to really test a broad assortment of product categories and individual products and, and just let the customer tell us what's mm. working, what's not working, what's relevant, what's not. Yeah, so that, that's been a good partnership so far. So you still get all the customer data and do all the customer service for those items that are listed on your site? Yeah, absolutely. So for, from a customer's perspective, it feels like a very native mm. surf stitch experience. And that was important for us from the start so that it didn't look like a weird bolt-on. And I was a little bit critical of the Maya market, the way that was set up because it didn't really feel like Maya. It felt a bit more like a traditional marketplace experience. So we wanted it to feel very surf stitch. So the customer had trust from day one. So yeah, we back it up with our service. We all the returns come back through us. All the delivery notifications and tracking and everything like that comes from us. So they get a very surfaced experience. They just get two parcels or three parcels. That's awesome. So they get everything that you've built up over all those years as being the leaders. Yep, with a bit more range. Um, and we, and- we we've got all the data. We keep the customer data. None of that goes um, elsewhere. So they can have confidence that none of their information is getting shared anywhere else. Makes sense. So you're a, you're a, on the Salesforce Commerce Cloud platform, right? Yeah. And then Marketplace is a separate platform. Is that a native integration between the two? Uh, they're working on that. Yeah, so Salesforce and Marketplace are working on a, on a dedicated integration there. We do it slightly differently because Marketplace is actually an end-to-end solution so we just use their back end, which really helps us onboard brands and sanitize product data really easily. And then we pipe it through our ERP so that when everything pushes through to our front end with Commerce Cloud, it's all the same. That's, it all looks the same. All of our content team, they process marketplace products just like they, they process wholesale product. So we didn't have to do a lot of change management internally 
to spin that up. And that was important for us. And all of our reporting as well comes out of our ERP and based on our front end. So we didn't want to have to kind of duplicate reporting for a, for a separate site or a separate inventory feed that was coming from Marketplace. Yeah, that makes total sense, especially when you value customer data to keep all that customer data in one place. And the last question sure. on the marketplace before we move on is um, from a vendor perspective in uploading product, is a vendor's catalog, is that just connected into marketplace and they choose what to release into SurfStitch? Yeah, it depends on the vendor. Um, if in a, an ideal scenario, say the vendors on Shopify, which a lot of them are these days, um, there's a direct link from Shopify into Marketplacer. So they don't actually have to do a lot of manual product importing. It d- links in, grabs all of the product data, and they basically do a selection process to say, we want this to go on SurfStitch or we don't want this to go on SurfStitch. Um, they can select what price it goes in at so they can mark it down whenever they want. They can select what promos they want to be in or not want to be in. Um, they can even put inventory thresholds on there. So they might only want to sell 20 of their board shorts to SurfStitch and keep 80 for their wholesale customers. They can control that as well. Um, so it gives them a lot more control around how they partner with us. Um, so, yeah, they're definitely in the driver's seat. Nice. So if we've got people listening to this who have brands and products that they go, I'd love to see this go on SurfStitch, from your point of view, what are the qualifiers or what makes a, a product pass through the gates to appear on uh, it's It's got to be relevant. Like it can't, it can't look like a really forced product placement um, to our customers because they can spot that from a mile away. Um, they're quite savvy. So it, it really needs to be in line with our core proposition, which is coastal lifestyle. So anything that fits within that coastal lifestyle umbrella, and it's quite broad once you start to unpack coastal lifestyle, but anything that fits within that, we will absolutely entertain. And if it's around any of our growth categories, we'll be really hungry to, to onboard those. We've got over 2 million names in our, in our database. Um, we get a lot of traffic. We are really passionate about premium content and putting brands on a, on a pedestal, particularly new brands. Um, and we'll use all of our digital channels to introduce those new brands to our, our pretty large active base. Um, so there's a lot of things to gain, I think, from brands. And originally, when we were going out to the market, talking about us being a marketplace, there were some dubious brands, particularly brands that were really focused on going direct to consumer um, themselves and really owning that channel. We think we can be another channel as well. So the brands still have all of the ownership, 100% ownership over the pricing, the placement, what assortment SurfStitch gets. But they get the luxury of having their brand up against all these other global brands in a really premium environment. And if it doesn't work, there's no stress. It's easy to easy to switch it off, pull it down. Um, there's no long-term commitments or anything like that that um, we need to put in place. So it's a good way to test the market with no massive commitments. I'd say um, if we take it back to the old days of retail um, where you had to go through the buyers and the merchandisers, it's a pretty simple process now, isn't it? Well, it is, yeah. And if you're already digital, like a lot of a lot of new brands these days are going, Let, let's just go direct to the customer, which I think is a great model um, and definitely a model of the future. Why can't we be a channel for that? Like we can give you so much, so many more eyeballs without the risk. Yeah, of course. Now you are based on the Gold Coast and recently moved into a new headquarters. It makes a lot of sense to be on the Gold Coast with your coastal lifestyle. How do you find being on the Gold Coast in terms of pros and cons of running an e-commerce business from there? We we love it. We've been here a while, and there's a lot of pros. It's very it's very much in line with our DNA as a brand. Our brand purpose is to inspire our customers to live like it's the weekend. So there's no better place than to embody that than on the Gold Coast. I think. I think there's some benefits too. We We've had really good employee retention over the years. Yeah, we have. I think there's probably a couple of periods there where it's gone the other way, but on the whole, we've had really good employee retention. I think if you're a, if you're a decent sized business that looks after your people and you're based on the Gold Coast, there's not that many other options for, mm. for, for crew to go. Um, so I think that, that plays into your favor. There is a bit of Gold Coast tax 
where if you can work a couple of blocks from the beach, you kind of have to add that onto your salary because it's definitely a perk of the of the role of the role and of the of the company. But yeah, there are some negatives too, particularly in the in the digital space. Some of the digital hubs um, are like magnets for for talent. So Sydney and Melbourne, in particular, even Brisbane, is emerging as a as a strong digital hub. Um, we've lost some good people along the way that are really ambitious to 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 grow and expand their careers. And there's just there's no chance of retaining some of those guys if you're if you're on the coast. So that's definitely been one of the downfalls. And then attracting talent. So some, occasionally we've had really good opportunities pop up in the past for senior experienced talent and we've found good people. Um, we just haven't been able to entice them to leave some of those big markets. But I feel like that's changing, particularly changing over the last 12 months. Yeah, definitely. We're seeing a lot of that as well is that whether it's Sunshine Coast, whether it's Toowoomba, whether it's Gold Coast, it's a lot easier to get people to have conversations around relocating in the last well, six months, I, th- I think, when people realize that this is actually just a way of life and we're going to get, you know, the big hubs aren't necessarily going to be the only way of progressing your career. For sure. And not just relocating, sort of working flexibly. Mm. There was a period where I worked in Sydney a couple of years ago and I was down there once a fortnight for a couple of days a week and that that worked back then and I think there's some level of normality to that now. Even the other way around with less planes in the air, a lot of people are working remotely 100% over Zoom like, like we are today. Yeah. As a managing director, how do you feel about remote work? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. I, I think it's the new norm. Not 100% the new norm. Um, that would be very challenging. But as an example, we were working from home for a couple of months last year, right when we were moving office. And when we came back into the new office, it was in a new location, not that far away. Like we went from Burley to Broadbeach, so an extra half an hour um, north on the Gold Coast Highway. There was a few of our employees that said, you know what, um, we would prefer the flexibility. We'd like to been really good for my family and work-life balance and um, we'd like to do one to two days of work a week from home. So we, we trialed that and it's been really good, really successful. The employees have been happier when they are here, they dig in um, and I feel like they work harder. So you've got on-site workforce that's super engaged. I feel like when they're home, they work harder. So when, when they're at home, they're, yeah. they're kind of earning it and, and so you've, you've kind of got that, that dual kind of benefit of the office works harder at home works harder and overall I think the workforce is more productive which isn't what I expected going into it I have to admit but I think it is the way of life I think we've we've done a bit of recruitment recently we've been doing interviews this week interviewing a lot of young people it's been really interesting some of the questions they ask us and one of the first questions is what's your flexibility policy yeah which is interesting but the other one interestingly is what's your stance on your environmental sustainability and social responsibility? Like, where do you guys stand on that and what's your policies? So there, we felt like we were getting interviewed on, on a couple of <laughs> instances, but that's, that's the next generation. That's, that's what they value. So it's definitely a, a way of life going forward. Now, I understand too that you are looking beyond just your own business and your own marketplace and you're helping other e-commerce brands with everything from content all the way through to fulfillment. How's that going to work? Yeah, we we've really tried to diversify the business model and in the past 12 months we've really tried to hone in on what it is that Surfstitch does well and over the last 12 years we've spent a lot of time, money, effort refining our back-end uh, processes. So we've got our own warehouse, our proprietary systems we've got a a unique picking app that that we've developed and owned and refined over many years and we're now in a position where we can bundle that up and offer it to other partners so over the last 12 months we've been doing that for one of our partner brands and we're now ready to offer it to to other third-party brands so as part of that service we offer product photography customer service any product content that's required all of the Receiving, picking, packing, deliveries that a 
accustomed to the high quality that SurfStitch gives, we can now offer that to other partners. Returns processing, which is a pain in everyone's ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, no 3PL does that well. We do it pretty good. Still not easy, but we do it better than most. So we can, we can help get other businesses off the ground with a really high standard of e-com service um, at a pretty affordable rate and do it better than most other 3PLs on the market. So we're ready to go with that and we're, we're out in market now. We've shared it with some of our closest partners, but um, we'll be ready to go out broader than that. That's a pretty big piggyback, especially for businesses first starting out to be able to get your 12 years of innovation and process all at once. Yeah, and it's something that we struggled with early on um, and we, we would love the opportunity to give others the, the leg up and help kickstart them. The, there were some tough times in 2017, 2018 where we went into um, voluntary administration and then come back out of that and, and I saw recently you've, you've said that there was 300 to 400% increases in profitability in the last few years, which is fantastic to see. Personally, what was the biggest lesson that you got from leading a team through a time like that? Oh, there was a few. Yeah, so prior prior to going into administration, we we were on fire as a as a business in a good way. Like we we were kind of darlings of the market, couldn't really do anything wrong. We're raising a bunch of capital. I think we raised 250 million and did six acquisitions in 12 months. Like we were, we were moving and moving pretty quickly. People um, were speaking that, about, about you like people are speaking about Afterpay. Like obviously yeah. not on the global scale, but you were the excitement machine on the ASX. On the ASX, yeah. We launched at a dollar. We got to what over three bucks, three bucks 15, I think in a couple of years and performing really well. Like people were keen to invest and we were able, it felt like we were able to raise capital whenever we wanted at that stage. People just believed in the story and we all did as well. We were all really passionate and riding the wave. It was such an exciting business to be a part of back then. I was, I bounced over to the US, was running or helping run the the swell business over there that we needed to do a lot of integration. I spent time in the UK in the surf dome business, understanding that. And we were working on this big global project to stitch all of the businesses together and have one global platform, one global brand. It was really exciting. But yeah, it, as quickly as it all built up, it actually was also a curse. Like we didn't realize it at the time, but we were trying to do a lot and we had a lot of people and the business was quite big and it was global and we just couldn't move as quickly and efficiently as we tried to and it started to break and there were pressure points along the way and our CEO was really passionate about hitting certain milestones, as were everyone in the business. But I think we didn't put enough emphasis on just executing the strategy, slowing down, um, doing things properly, thinking things through, stress testing some of our thought processes. We just were just sprinting at everything. <laughs> um, and while that, sound, that sounds fun and it was fun, um, it had its issues. Retail's still a dirty business, right? You've still got to do all the basics, right? And if you miss the basics, then you're screwed. Absolutely. And it wasn't like we were brand new startups anymore. Like the Swell business was actually the oldest business in the group. It launched in 99. So um, it wasn't like you were working with startups that were getting 100% growth a year anymore. We're all starting to hit that maturity curve and growth was getting tougher. Year-on-year comps were getting harder and our plans hadn't changed. They were still really high growth profile models so yeah that the the pressure crack started to show through that period the ceo left pretty abruptly and he had a philosophy that the the australian market didn't really understand e-commerce businesses and felt like we weren't really getting valued like if we were on the the u.s market Um, he felt like if we were over there either privately held or publicly listed over there in new york we would have been valued much higher than what we were out here based on our numbers. He's probably right. Mm. So he, he was keen to delist here and relist over there. So that that whole piece of the puzzle just didn't work out well. So he resigned, left abruptly because he was conflicted, trying to execute on that plan. The board at the time weren't really aware of the plan, so it just imploded a little bit. Everyone in that kind of realm being directors of companies going to ask covering mode like yeah. everyone probably would 
not wanting to be personally liable for for things you're not a hundred percent across. So yeah, it just started to sort of spiral. We we backed out of a lot of contracts. We backed out of all sorts of things. We revised our full year guidance. Yeah, the share price started to tumble. And once it starts to tumble like that, it was hard to hard to recover. And the biggest issue with that whole process was we raised fifty million dollars in like three months before the CEO resigned. So we and we raised it at two dollars a share. So raised that at two dollars a share, and then the share price quickly dropped to thirty cents. Um, so we lost close to half a billion dollars in five months off the market cap. Yeah, it was a big, a big fall and a really tricky time to be kind of leaving one of the one of the biggest businesses. Um, but after that happened, the class actions came out of the woodwork, and that's what really put us under pressure. So we probably could have recovered from replacing the CEO, replacing the board. Um, and getting back on track. But with the share price tumbling, the class actions mounting, we had multiple litigations going. Brand new CEO came in, brand new board came in, takes them a little bit of time to wrap their head around everything. And then fighting the class actions was a full-time job. So they didn't really spend a lot of time on figuring out the business. And we mm. were all just, it was kind of every man for themselves from a, an individual region perspective. Um, and it didn't take too long after that before the administrators got called in because we just couldn't effectively. It wasn't that we were running out of out of money or we're insolvent or anything like that. We actually had a, a really healthy bank balance. It was that we just couldn't fight the litigation plus run the business at the same time. So we needed the administrators to come in and and help us navigate that that period. And I can imagine that takes such a toll on your culture where you've gone from being the darlings, but also just a culture of just innovation and creativity and changing the way that retail's done to all of a sudden having to fight fires and a little that air of uncertainty and probably, I'm putting words in your mouth, but maybe a little bit of panic um, yeah. around the team. Was there a moment that you had as a leader that you went, there's a really big lesson here for me in terms of getting your people through that moment? Yeah, yeah, there was a few and I didn't, I didn't realize what they were until I had some time to reflect on it kind of after some of the dust had settled. But I think it was really important that we communicated as openly and honestly as possible. So I made a point each week of standing up in front of the whole team saying, this is what I know. Here's the latest. Don't worry about what you're reading in the papers or what you're listening to on your, your morning commute because we were kind of everywhere in the press at that stage. Like, this is it. Like, you can trust me. I'm being honest, trying to get us through this this process. I need everybody in this kind of forum to help educate all of our partners because our partners were on the phone every day too, mm-hmm. whether it was tech partners, vendor partners. Because technically, the Surf Stitch Australia business, which is the business I was running, wasn't in administration it was the surf stitch group that was in administration. So oh. it's a technicality, but to most people, even reporters, they just write surf stitch, yeah. which looks like it's us. So we, we weren't bound by the technical constraints of being in administration as surf stitch proprietary limited because it kind of sat at the group level. So yeah, that was a technicality that I felt like I was on repeat with all of our vendor partners, but we had to really shore up all of our trading terms and um, financial obligations with all of our partners because everyone assumed the worst because there's not a lot of businesses that come out of administration in a successful position. So um, everyone was in damage control. So, yeah, it was a it was a really busy, hectic period of me mm. being almost overly optimistic and overly positive around where I thought the future would be for the business and I just had to influence and convince and bring the whole team along to to my way of thinking but it was all done through complete openness and transparency and whatever I knew everybody else knew which can be difficult as well but it was just that relentless communication yeah yeah it's a really great lesson and um you've done an incredible job to bring bring it back to where it is today and definitely a leader um, not only in the e-commerce space, but in retail in Australia. And as a side note, I'd be a very horrible fairy tale writer because I've, we've started with all the good stuff. 
and then we've ended on the on the on the bad note. When normally we should start with the problem and then come out the other side, but we've gone a bit backwards. But that's all right. Um, we could talk forever. I know we could. What is next? We've talked a little bit about what's next for you, yourself and Surf Stitch, but what's got you really excited? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm really enjoying being back in Surf Stitch. Like I said, I stepped out for a period and worked at the private equity group. I've been back in the Surf Stitch chair for just over 12 months now. We've had a really good year. Um, it hasn't been an easy year, but we've we've done an excellent job of getting complete visibility over the the total cost of doing business. We've restructured our margin profile. We've really honed in on our brand proposition. I feel like we've got super exciting things ahead for Surf Stitch, not just as a brand, but as a platform in coastal lifestyle. So I've, we're only just getting started as as Surf Stitch. The team's really engaged. We've had a massive turnaround in profitability in operating cash. Um, investors are happy with where we are. Our vendors have never been happier. We're bringing on new vendors. So I feel like we're, we're in the healthiest position we've ever been in. Even looking back to those highs of highs of yeah. when the share price was, was flying, we were never this profitable even back then. So we're sitting in a, in a, in a really good position that's a sustainable long term position, which I couldn't have said that ever in the history of Surf Stitch. So um, I'm really keen to lock in and allow the business to reach its potential and give the, give the team below me some airspace to execute on what they believe the business should be as well. So yeah, I think next couple of years, really exciting for not, not just for us, but for e-com in general. Absolutely. No, that's brilliant. I think you've got a lot of fun ahead of you with uh, whether it's loyalty or whether it's marketplace or whether it's content, which we didn't even get to touch on all your plays in content, but feels like the fun's going to come back to Surf Stitch pretty quickly and pretty fast. For sure. Yeah. And there's a a real groundswell that is tangible of this. Let's be hyper-local. Let's support guys that are local retail businesses on the ground. We're one of them. We're happy to support other local retail businesses as well through our platform. We're doing really good partnerships with local kind of sideline businesses like Mr. Consistent. Um, we developed that, that cocktail with those guys. They're just based at Burley. I love Burley. their shaker kits. We had them on New Year's. They so were good. awesome. So good. Such a great, a great concept. So we developed uh, an exclusive cocktail with them called the Stitch Up, which is a blue, <laughs> a blue cocktail mix. Um, and gave it to our, our customers through, through peak, but they're loving it. It's now sold in bars kind of around the Gold Coast. Um, everyone's kind of frothing on that as a concept. And I just love the concept of two local businesses genuinely getting benefit out of working with one another. And yep. I think that's a real trend, probably a post COVID trend, but definitely one that should stay. Burley Brewing is our official beer sponsor. <laughs> so <laughs> staff they, morale sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> they keep the office energy high. They keep us hydrated and they, they love to partner with us on campaign shoots and, and different events that we do. So that's another just local, genuine local partnership that they get value out of, we get value out of. So I'm, I'm really keen to see how many more of those we can do as well. That's brilliant. Now, if people want to get in touch with you or the team, whether they're hyper local or they've got something that they think is going to change your business, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, reach out to me directly through through LinkedIn or you can hit me on jhilberg at surfstitch.com. Um, I'm pretty approachable, accessible, um, and I can point you in the right direction because I've got a lot of experts in my team that will answer your questions better than me. Mate, thank you. You've answered today's questions brilliantly. I've loved our chat and we could keep going, but um, we'll call there because it's Friday afternoon and um, I know the rest of your office is gone. Time for you to go home, go home as well. <laughs> cool, mate. Thanks. Great Thanks, to Justin. Go, mate. There was so much in there. And a massive thank you to Justin for being so open on everything from how to calculate customer acquisition costs to getting your team through a crisis of that magnitude. One part of the conversation which I loved and I narrowed in on a little bit is the massive opportunity for direct-to-consumer brands, especially those we're trying to avoid the traditional retail distribution model, is the use of marketplace strategy. SurfStitch, along with Maya and Bike Exchange, they use technology called Marketplacer. While it's not the only marketplace technology available, they're an Australian platform They just raised $20 million in investment and are looking to expand into the US. It's a really exciting space. 
it could be worth a look if you can connect into their M-Seller technology to be able to offer your products through other online retail channels, but still maintain a degree of control. It's just another option for selling. Thanks again to Justin for giving us a look into how it works for both retailers and distributors. To finish up, I have three resources for you. Firstly, if you're a first-time listener of Add to Cart and you want to stay up to date with new episodes, head over to addtocart.com.au and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. We'll let you know every time a new episode drops, as well as giving you my three takeaways from each episode and a link to the transcripts so you can know that this is an episode that you want to dive straight into. Secondly, if you want a weekly roundup of the best e-commerce case studies, tools, and research, sign up to the High Five Friday newsletter, which is delivered to inboxes at 8 a.m. every Friday morning. I read all the e-commerce news and send you the bits that I think you can take action from. Sign up at 12high12high.com.au forward slash high five. And the last thing, if you are looking to explore your next e-commerce opportunity, head over to esuitetalent.com.au. We are a dedicated e-commerce talent agency connecting the best e-commerce talent with the fastest growing brands. Check it out, sign up to the email and get in touch with me if you want to discuss your next move. Until next time, thanks for listening and keep those customers adding to cart. Cart.